I'm here with Dr. Michael Di Gregorio, Asia Foundation's country representative in Vietnam. In this role, Mike has led new projects and programs to address business-related climate and disaster risk, city-level climate resilience, green finance, blockchain traceability for sustainable agriculture, and digital finance for rural and remote farmers and small enterprise owners. Prior to joining the Asia Foundation, he served as a researcher with the Rockefeller Foundation's Asian Cities Climate Change Resilient Network, and he's also affiliated with the University of Hawaii. Mike is keynote speaker at the Sydney Southeast Asia Annual ASEAN Forum, and this year we're looking at ASEAN and the digital revolution. So Mike, I understand that the digital revolution is often described as the fourth industrial revolution. Is this accurate? And can you tell us what is meant by the fourth industrial revolution? Actually, you can really think of the digital revolution as the entree or gateway into the fourth industrial revolution. The fourth industrial revolution is a bit more complicated than the digital revolution because uh, what we see happening is this kind of breakdown of barriers between physical, biological, and digital in many ways. You can think of the digital revolution as the revolution of information communications technology. This really started with the invention of the transistor, but got the most momentum uh, through the space race when uh, computer technology had to be miniaturized, both for weight and capacity. And this set off this whole kind of uh, information and communications technology revolution. And we saw that in things like personal computers, right? And later on, we saw it as mobile phones. And now we see it as cloud computing. But when we go to the fourth industrial revolution, that digital technology is now being merged with other forms of technology. For example, AI enabling automation, or microchips implanted in organic organisms to either solve some kind of medical problem, for example, epilepsy or something like that, or to alter that organism so it can be manipulated, like defense uh, advanced research things where they put uh, microchips into moths so that they can use for surveillance. Uh, it's a it's a whole brave new world. We don't know where it's going, and we're actually just on the cusp of it. We kind of see where it's headed. We kind of know what the technologies might be uh, based on the things that have already been developed and uh, on the research strategies that various people are following. So perhaps we could describe the fourth industrial revolution as characterized by digital innovation, but also biological and physical technologies as well. Yeah, and especially the way that they merge, as I said, in things like AI used in automation or 3D printing, where you are creating a, a physical device, say a, an airplane part, using advanced engineering for your diagram and technology in the 3D printer and advanced materials to form this. Okay, so what does the fourth industrial revolution mean for middle-income countries in Southeast Asia, such as Vietnam, and are they prepared? If you think about the kind of range of development in ASEAN, you've got some countries like Malaysia that are quite advanced, countries like Vietnam that are advancing really quickly, or Philippines, Thailand, and then like Cambodia and Laos. What's become clear is that what was formerly assumed to be a kind of linear progression, 
where countries use low-cost labor to move up the scale to higher-income countries. In essence, they are using their low-cost labor to import demand from richer countries by exporting goods to them, right? So they're not producing for themselves because the low wages make it difficult for the population to actually afford the things that they're making. So they're exporting those products and importing demand. That's been the kind of strategy for the past, say, 50 years or so. Automation, AI, 3D printing, many of the technologies, financial technologies, global supply chains, all of these things make that kind of strategy much more difficult because capital, knowledge, become the key components of economic development rather than the labor. Yeah. So ASEAN countries are very much aware of this because they don't know what they're going to do with that labor. Mm. So on the one hand, you have them focusing on things like the future of work. That's great for some people because the trend will be that there will be fewer jobs for people with much higher technical knowledge. Then what about everybody else? Are they just going to shift into service occupations? And how many of those people will be full-time? And how many people will be covered by health insurance or pensions or unemployment insurance if they're all own-account workers? So ASEAN has had to approach this fundamental change in the way wealth is created with a great deal of caution because it totally upsets what was considered the development trajectory mm. that they've been following. So there's a bit of an unwillingness within ASEAN to fully embrace the fourth industrial revolution, but are they going to get dragged along in the fourth industrial revolution whether they like it or not? That's the big question. One of the things that occurs with this change in technology is that you still may have global supply chains, but now demand will be often close to where the product is manufactured. So sometimes, you know, I will say that developing countries can now compete on the level of quality because now a lot of the processes are going to be automated and standardized, whereas richer countries will be able to compete on the basis of cost exactly for the same reasons because those are high labor cost countries. And if you automate, you can reduce your cost and still retain your quality. And the opposite happens in the developing country. So the chances of ASEAN avoiding these changes are very small because it's going to really impact the way goods are produced and distributed. Okay, I'd like to turn now to the global climate crisis and how it intersects with the fourth industrial revolution, particularly in a Southeast Asian context, because Southeast Asia is likely to be one of the regions in the world to experience what they call climate departure, where the abnormal becomes the new normal. So what role can new technologies play in responding to the social and political and ecological disruption caused by climate change? One of the key issues that I and some of my colleagues in the Asia Foundation talk about is nonlinearity. For at least 20 or 30 years of work on disaster risk management, it was always assumed that you could predict an impact and either prevent it or respond to it. So you've got organizations mobilized worldwide, including within ASEAN, the AHA Center, 
What is that organization? The, the AHA ASEAN Center? Humanitarian Agency. Okay. And what they do is monitor natural disasters and organize responses, okay? And in, in ASEAN, that may mean coordination. Uh, for example, the tsunami in Indonesia. They may need to organize some kind of activity response. So, you know, that's the way it's been for a long time. What climate change is doing, it makes the prediction of the disaster very difficult mm -hmm. because of nonlinearity, sometimes called the butterfly effect. Let's just take a hypothetical example. Let's just say that we have an ocean heat wave in the Java Sea. And two things happen from that ocean heat wave. Number one, the, the migratory species of fish, the pelagic species, move out of the Java Sea and into the South China Sea, which then makes it impossible for fishermen who do offshore fishing to earn a living. And then second, the fish that don't move, the fish that are around the coral reefs and along the, the coast, cannot survive in that heat and either die, which then destroys the whole coastal fishing industry. Now you've got millions of people who are out of work, which could cause a crisis in any of the countries. You know, So you've got basically Malaysia and Indonesia uh, around the Java Sea, which then could result in fishermen who then decide that if I'm going to survive, I'm going to have to move into the Philippine Sea or the South China Sea or the Indian Ocean and then conflict with others. So you, you start to kind of create a whole wave of unanticipated consequences from things that used to just be considered dyadic. You know, this happens, then that happens, and we respond. And since you can't predict the outcomes and you can't prevent them, so how do you respond to them? Well, how do you respond to them? My approach is to start to think of these whole kinds of potential matrices of outcomes and then to assess, you know, which ones are more likely than others and what kind of responses would a country or a community have to those kinds of responses. It's basically the resilience method that I learned while working with the Rockefeller Foundation. And the goal of that would be to reduce vulnerability and increase resilience. And in order to do that, you really have to think outside of this uh, kind of predict and prevent. Which is this traditional way we've thought about responding to risk. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us specifically about the role that digital financial services can play in improving climate resilience? Yeah. In my work with the Asia Foundation as a country representative, I am involved in many different fields of work. You know, we have our work on, on disaster risk reduction and climate change and energy, and we also have work on labor and financial technologies. And over the past year, myself, uh, my deputy, and a few other people uh, have been thinking about how these things relate to each other, in part so we can make sense of our own work, uh, and in part due to the anticipation that climate change is not preventable. Catastrophes will occur and will have these unintended consequences. And we've been working with the Vietnam Bank for Social Policy for about five years. 
And we started that work thinking that what we're going to create is a mobile banking platform. You know, the fintech world changes rapidly, and we're now well beyond that notion of the, the mobile banking platform into a whole kind of uh, digital financial services uh, perspective. And as we started to think about that, we learned that our partner, the Bank for Social Policies, had made 100,000 loans to households whose homes were damaged or destroyed through natural disasters. And I recently asked our counterpart over there, how many now? And he said they've made 300,000 loans already. This got us thinking about, well, what else could digital financial services do in relation to disasters related to climate change? And we discussed this with our other partner, which is MasterCard. And we saw that the advantage of these digital financial services is that the people who are affected by a disaster are not held to their local market. And that's going to be a market of scarcity. So if they need food or, you know, roofing or repair equipment or new equipment, a water pump or solar panels or piping or anything like that, everything is going to be more expensive in that local area. Of course, the first two lines of defense is you have cash on hand and you have a community of neighbors to help you. We're not discounting any of that. But after that initial trauma and recovery, when you start to rebuild, having those digital financial services allows you now to go online and to get that equipment you need. Or, for example, let's just say you have relatives abroad. They can put money in your account. Or you have a relative who is working overseas. They can transfer money to your account. Or let's just say that community is a very cohesive community that has many members who've traveled abroad. They can put money in a community support fund. Mm -hmm. So it, it really changes the dynamic of the recovery process from a disaster, from one where you depend initially on your own financial resources and cash and neighbors to one where the recovery process becomes one that is not connected solely to the local market and area. And it's far more ne networked. Far more networked. Yeah. I have time for one last question. And I, within this context of climate change, it can often be a very depressing um, topic. So I'd like to ask you what cause there is for optimism when it comes to thinking about digital technology and climate change in Southeast Asia. I think the optimism is that people are thinking about it. These are not two things that go together. And it's taken time for people to become uncomfortable with this kind of dualistic thinking. I'm either working in this or I'm working in that. And as they become uncomfortable, they start to think deeply about things like democracy, who controls the internet, what role financial services would play, who manages blockchain, so that we can now begin to think about uh, very deeply within these crises, do we end up with more authoritarian systems or can we retain open, transparent, community, democratic oriented systems? In the past, we never saw the relations between these kinds of things. We just thought, you know, technology moves on its own, climate change is happening over here, uh, digital finance happens this way. And as we start to bring them together, we see that how deeply the governance issue is embedded within mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm.
Very interesting indeed. Mike, we're so looking forward to your keynote at our ASEAN Forum. And thank you very much for taking the time to do a podcast with us here at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Thank you very much, Natalie. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.